Well, good morning. You may notice that uh, there's just three of us up here, and I appreciate you all jumping in and singing. So on Wednesday, we had um, the beginning of Lent, and uh, hopefully some of you were able to make it out on Wednesday night for the Lenten service. And a part of the season of Lent is this idea of giving something up. And it comes from the uh, chapter in Luke, chapter 4, and it says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. I think I would be hungry too after 40 days of not eating anything. And so this morning, as kind of a way to capture the spirit of Lent, uh, we have decided to go all a cappella for our worship. So, not because I think we idolize music or instruments. It's not for that reason, as much as it is for that awareness, right, of growing in an appreciation for something. And um, as, as we thought about this, I also thought, you know, Acapella groups are pretty popular in some ways, and um, they can create these beautiful harmonies and these beautiful sounds just with their voices. And so there's something actually really beautiful and amazing about just the voice, right? But there's also a lot of vulnerability that comes when we just do the voice, right? We don't have the instruments to kind of help us, guide us, lead us, cover our a little bit, uh, you know, maybe off pitch or whatever. And so there is this tension that also comes with it. And it's when we can kind of really embrace the tension, when we can really embrace the, the conflict or the, the, that discomfort, that it actually encourages us and it pulls from within us this courage to just embrace it, just accept who we are, good voice or not, on pitch or not, And just to really say, okay, this is who I am, and I'm going to sing because I'm here to worship God, and there's no piano or guitar to kind of help help smooth that over and make it sound nice, (laughs) but so be it, you know, and we're just going to go, and we're going to worship God, and we're going to go in that tension, and we're going to rely on his spirit, and we're going to rely on him. And so this morning, if it's a little uncomfortable, I don't apologize for that. That's the point. But you're not alone because it's uncomfortable for all of us. So we will extend grace to you as long as you extend it back up here to us (laughs) as well. So thank you for that. All right. Hand it over to uh, DJ for Father, we're so thankful, God, to be in your presence this morning. And uh, just singing, just no instruments, just lifting our voices to you this morning. God, I pray that you would stir in our time of worship that's coming up and just focusing on the words letting our hearts and minds be transformed as we sing in your presence. God, we thank you for our children. We bless them. We thank you for the gifts and blessings that you give us. And Father, as we give back to you a portion of that in the offering, we pray that you would use it for the building up of your church and your kingdom. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning again. Get to see my face a lot today. Making up for... uh... All of us having the flu in January, and we like missed pretty much all of January. 
on Sundays, one of us staying home with either being sick or having a sick kid, so just do it all today to make up for it, you know? It's like penance or something like that, right? (laughs) Thanks again for singing, you know, and for walking through that. You know, it's like, I appreciate what Brad, you said there about like, it's not, we're not giving this stuff up, you know, for religious reasons. Um, we give it up because it's, it's just about like appreciating, cultivating a mindset or a heart, you know, that is just open and receptive to, to how God's spirit wants to move, right? And when we do that, it really allows us um, to further the kingdom. And, and it's weird to say that because you don't necessarily see the spiritual significance of something like this this morning. Um, you know, we, we, we so much value productivity in our culture, right? And where we want to see the, like, okay, yes, I'm being successful because I see this being accomplished by what I'm doing. And yet, when we go through this season of Lent, when we take time to fast, when we take time to... Um, you know, let go of something that's been a rhythm in our life, it is a significant spiritual practice in the kingdom of God. And it works in exponential levels in, our, in the spiritual realm, in the spiritual world, and, and not only in ourselves, but also in, in our community and in our places of work and our families. You know, I... Um, I had uh, a client come in this, uh, like a week or two ago, and she was telling me how she's, she's fasting. And she did, she started off 2019 with a 10-day fast, and then the first Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday of every month, for the whole of 2019, she fasted those three days from food. And, and I was like, oh, yeah, no. <laughs> That's crazy. But... I could hear, and she was just confessing, like, she was like, look, I don't do well not eating food. And she's like, and, and she's like, those first three days of that 10-day commitment, she was like, I was so grumpy, and I was so grouchy, because I was like, I just want to eat. And, and she's like, and she's never really committed to fasting before because of that, because she knew that she was just like, no, this isn't like, I don't like it. It makes me irritable and annoyed. And now she chose to do it. She did it with, her, with, with a group in 2019 and 2020. She's doing it on her own again. Because it just transformed her life. Because she was able to recognize, and she's, she's like, the thing I realized is, after about, she's like, once I hit day four, I realized I wasn't going to die. And I was okay. <laughs> you know? And just a simple, like, how much, right, like, we've, we, we get it in our minds, like, we need to eat every day to be okay. And, and yet, like, when we get to this, this core fundamental level of dependence on God and something like that, um, that's where we actually get to experience the richness, the depth of how far God's love goes, how deep the bloodshed for us runs, Right? And as this morning we're looking at Isaiah 52 and 53, that, that really is sort of the, it's in the same theme, right? Of 
recognizing just how deep this goes. How deep is it in your life, the sacrifice that Christ made? So Isaiah 52 and 53 talks about the suffering servant. And so as we look at suffering, suffering is something probably all of us has experienced on some level. Even even as a kid, right, as we maybe really wanted that toy or that dessert, the suffering that we endured from our parents who said no, right, is a level of pain and discomfort as a child. And, and simply put, that's what suffering is. Suffering is going through pain, distress, or some type of hardship. And we, it can be relative, right? I mean, so like, we look at um, even the example we had this morning, right, of the cochlear implants, right? The, they're suffering, you know, of going through that with your kid here, Right? And then we can say, oh, but then in the Philippines, right, there's like even less supports, even less, right? And so the suffering there might be greater. But suffering isn't meant to be comparable. It's not, we don't design it that way. But because suffering is really relative to our experience and what we walk through and what pain we feel, what distress we're going through. And sometimes, yeah, we could be like, like as, a, as we watch our kid, right, we say, yeah, that's okay to suffer like that, right? It's okay that you're suffering about the fact that you're not getting your way. That's actually a really good thing, right? But then there's this suffering that we experience in life that sometimes isn't understandable. Doesn't have a reason, doesn't have a why. And, and we're all probably too familiar with the question because we probably asked it ourselves of God. It's just, you know, why do good things happen to bad people, right? So many books have been written about that, right? And so many conversations Sermons have been preached on that. And, and I don't think it's, a, it's an immature question to ask. I think it's actually a very important question to ask. And it's a part of our spiritual journey and our relational journey with God. And so hopefully this morning as we walk through Isaiah 52 and 3, um, you'll be able to have some answer to that or at least some understanding of suffering in a new way. Some understanding that as we suffer and what we go through, that ultimately, like, we're not alone in that. So in the book of Isaiah, there's a lot. He's a, he's a very informed, wordy man. And um, there are... They've identified in Isaiah that there's four what they call servant songs. And these are sort of like a series of four prophecies or um, analogies or pictures uh, that look forward, but also speak to present situations and present times. And so the first one comes in chapter 42 of Isaiah. And here we have that informs us that God has chosen a servant in whom his soul delights, right? So Isaiah, he's speaking to the nation of Israel. He's speaking to God's chosen people. And he's saying, hey, 
God has chosen a servant among us with whom he delights. And so we have this sense of hope. You know, the nation of Israel in the midst of their exiles, in the midst of their, their pain and their suffering, the midst of loss of hope from what they believed was supposed to come to fruition based on the promises from Abraham and the line of Jacob, there's hope. We get to chapter 49 and we learn of the role of the servant. That is to provide salvation to the ends of the earth. And so we know that this servant is going to bring something good. He's going to come and he's going to bring salvation. He is, he is their hope. He is the light that they've been waiting for. And Isaiah speaks to that. Then we get to... Um, so then, in, in at the end of chapter 49, he also highlights Israel's restoration. right? So he talks about Israel being restored in, in contrast or by this servant. We get, which leads us into um, the song then found in chapter 50. And it, it takes a little bit of a shift here. It's still in the same theme, right? Still hopeful, still promising. But in 50, this is where Isaiah begins to present this paradox of a sovereign Lord and a suffering servant. And then we come to the end of 52 and the beginning of 53, which is the climax of the servant songs. And here we are confronted with the fullness of the paradox of the strength and the weakness of this servant. It's the paradox of a redeeming Messiah and a suffering unto death servant. And it's been debated for many generations. So you look back into old texts of Jewish culture, such as like the Midrash, which is uh, a lot of rabbis, right? They write their reflections regarding scripture and the Torah. You have the Targum and the Septuagint, which are early manuscripts of of our biblical text. So even back to the reflections on these texts and the writings of ancient rabbis, there's this dialogue of how do we kind of justify, how do we get these two pieces to be understood together, a redeeming Messiah and a suffering servant. For some, it was that they they can't coexist in one person. They have to be divided. They're separate, right? A redeeming Messiah means he's going to come. He's he's mighty. He's all-powerful. He is our Savior. He can't suffer. And yet, There were some among the rabbinical leaders who said, no, read the text, see the words. There is suffering that happens, and I might not be able to understand it, but I also can't ignore it. And it's here, it's in the text. Now, us being on kind of uh, this side of the scriptures, right, being written and and well-reviewed by many, many generations before us. We can kind of hold that tension, I think, a little bit better because think about the stories that we know in Scripture. So here, just in Isaiah, we have the idea of strength being in contrast to weakness. What are some other contrasts that you can kind of recall in Scripture? Think of others that Scripture contrasts. It's open forum. 
Thoughts? Yeah. David and Goliath. Yeah. Right? You have this like huge strong guy, this little guy. Right? The power of the Lord in that. It's good. In the beginning. Yeah. Yes. That's where I was going. In the beginning, right? There was light and darkness, right? And so we have this contrast of light and darkness. Yeah. Others? Else? Yeah. Fear and faith. Yes. We see the contrast there as well, right? Yeah. There's also how many of you are familiar with uh, the Beatitudes, right? And we have, blessed are those who hunger. Well, then we get to John 6, and it says, no one who comes to me will ever be hungry. So wait, blessed am I, so I'm supposed to deny your food? Like, there's contrast, right? There's this paradox. Or how about, we're all probably very familiar with Matthew 11, which says, my, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. But then we get to Matthew 7, and we get, or, and, but before that, in Matthew 7, it says, how difficult the road that leads to life, right? And so all throughout Scripture, we have these verses that say, say this, but then also say this. And they present two truths that seem to oppose each other. And in the same way, here in this picture in Isaiah, we have these two truths of a redeeming Messiah and a suffering servant that do not seem to make sense. They do not seem to fit. But that is the difference. Well, that's the, the essence or the beauty of a paradox. Is that in paradox, two things can be true. And for many of us, myself included, oftentimes paradoxes leave me to either forget the one and just embrace one part of it, or be like, yeah, I don't know about that. And just... Just not think about it. But paradox actually exists, I think, to draw us in, to encourage us to dig deeper, to find the place where we can sit with the tension and hold on either end the truths. And we just, we live there. Because when we are there, I think that's where we are most vulnerable and need to depend on God. Because we say, I can't fully comprehend this. I can't fully understand this. And, I, and maybe I'm not supposed to, but I can sit in the tension of both of these things being true. And I can allow myself to respond to circumstances in my life based on the reality that both of these things are true. And so there might be seasons where I fast from food and I, I work at and allow myself to experience the blessing of being hungry. And then there are times where maybe I'm fellowshipping with brothers and sisters and I allow myself to embrace the food. In Italy last summer, no problem with that. <laughs> right? The food was amazing. And I got to enjoy that, right? And be blessed by the food. Still working on the blessing with the hunger piece. That takes some time. 
So these paradoxes exist all throughout scripture and they create this tension that I believe is designed to draw us in. So we're going to jump in then to Isaiah 52 and we're going to read this servant song in Isaiah. Picks up at Isaiah 52 verse 13 and it goes to through chapter 53. So I just invite you as we read to just listen, because there's, again, even within the text here, there are several contrasts, several paradoxes that Isaiah writes. He says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Right, so his is referring to the suffering servant. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which, has, which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that was led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. 
done right there, right? I mean, that's pretty profound. Isaiah is talking to Israel. It's convicting, right, when you read that we esteemed him not. Right? Israel esteems him not. We see this come true in the Gospels, right? We see how the nation of Israel embraces Jesus, the Son of Man. They esteem him not. The paradox is this idea of the redeeming Messiah, the suffering servant, right? They come together in so many images through what Isaiah shares. If we look at it, verse 13, right in the beginning, he shall be high and lifted up, right? If we're thinking redeeming Messiah, high and lifted up is like, yo, this guy's getting a throne, he's getting exalted, he's getting praised, he's getting honor, he's getting power. But when we think of suffering servant, right, we think of the cross. What's he being lifted up? He's being lifted up on a hill as a, as a criminal, Right? He's being lifted up on a hill on a cross to die. And so we have this like tension of realizing our Savior, the man who took our iniquities, who we would so desire to be lifted up in a position or a place of authority, gets lifted up on a cross. Verse 1 and verse 2 of 53 contrast the same idea of strength and weakness. And it says, To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Right? When you think about arm of the Lord, yo, he's jacked, right? Like, that's a strong arm. Right? I'm not messing with the arm of the Lord. I'm going to, yeah, you got this. Go ahead. And then the next phrase and grew up before him like a young plant. How fragile, right, is a young plant? How much tending to does a young plant need to grow up? And so again, we see this contrast of strength and weakness. We see this, this paradox of, of this one person, this servant that Isaiah talks about being in this position of, of strength, yet weakness. We have even more, right? Verse 5, by his wounds we are healed. So his wounds heal us, right? All of a sudden we're drawn in on this level now, right? Because his wounds then carry something, right? So I actually now need him to be wounded to be healed. And all of a sudden there's this accountability, there's this realization, there's this this accountability to us, to myself, in personal relationship with this servant. For the nation of Israel, it was, hey, if we are going to become the chosen people that God has called us to be, we, this guy needs to be wounded. That's going to be a very difficult thing to understand. That's going to be a very difficult thing 
to embrace when it's a redeeming Messiah. When you think you're waiting on this guy to come in, raise up an army, and go knock down all the other nations. But we're sick. But they hear this like, no, his wounds will heal you. Okay. What's this mean, right? What's this look like? Are we thinking sacrificial, sacrificial system, right? Which is very much part of Jewish culture. Whoa. Wait, wait, wait. We don't sacrifice people. That's what other nations do, right? And so there's this, there's this tension that Isaiah is building here within the context of the culture of Israel, within the context of our own relationship with this servant. Verse 8 and 9 offer the same kind of thing. Stricken for transgression, though he had done no violence and no deceit was in his mouth. Right? Do we get that righteous anger? Because here is this guy who's going to be stricken, yet he has done nothing wrong. And how even in today, that is a form of injustice in our world. Right? It's, it's, it's the worst kind, right? When suffering comes as a consequence or a punishment to someone of innocence, right? This is why we cry out when innocent people, right, are hurt as a casualty of, of war or as a casualty of violence. It's unjust. And yet, this very unjust thing is going to happen to this servant. And so here again, we're held in this tension of like, how is it possible that I need that to happen? And yet it is such an unjust thing. And it really calls us to a place of trust. It calls us to a place of dependence. It calls us to a place of realizing how how incredible God is. That he understands a system. He understands he has created a way where there seemed to be no way. Right? How he has in some ways, right, redeems injustice by bringing Christ, his son, to that very point of receiving unjust punishment. And we can't, we can't have good without there being some place where good and bad collide. This is, kind of, this is also what creates this paradox, right? It creates this tension. Because God comes in to the in, un, unjust. God comes in to the sinner and redeems. There's this record of a rabbi writing in the Midrash. And he writes... I have no idea if this is really what happened, but it's almost as if he's, he's sitting there pondering, like reflecting on Isaiah. And, and you can almost see him kind of go into his imagination. He, he starts staring off, and, and like he's, there's this like dialogue going on inside of him, and, and he records this, this image. And this was written um, in the 9th century, 200 BCE to 400 says, 
And the Holy One made an agreement with the Messiah and said to him, The sins of those which are forgiven for your sake will cause you to be put under an iron yoke. And they will make you like this calf whose eyes are dim. And they will choke your spirit under the yoke. And on account of their sins, your tongue shall cleave to your mouth. If you remember, that's a reference to Psalm 22, which DJ preached on and Jesus spoke from the cross. Your tongue shall cleave to your mouth. Are you willing to do this? Said Messiah before the Holy One. Perhaps this agony will last many years. And the Holy One said to him, By your life and by the life of my head, one week only have I decreed for you. But if your soul is grieved, I shall destroy them even now. But the Messiah said to him, Sovereign of the world, with the gladness of my soul and the joy of my heart, I take it upon me, on condition that not one of Israel shall perish, and not only the, those alone should be saved who are in my days, but also those who are hid in the dust. And not only should the dead of my own time be saved, but all the dead from the first man until now. Also the unborn, and those whom thou hast intended to create. Thus I agree. And on this condition, I will take it upon myself. It's recorded in the tract Pesta Rabita. How amazing that a rabbi wrote that. That he could understand from the text. This Jewish leader back you know, hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, Capture that. We know as we get into the New Testament that this idea of Christ being, Jesus being the suffering servant is picked up on throughout most of the New Testament. Luke, Paul, Peter, and others really grab hold of this idea. And they, use, they reference Isaiah throughout all of the New Testament. We look at uh, 1 Peter 2, 18 to 25. And we hear Peter in, in referencing how we are to, to honor authority. He writes this. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. This is capturing it all, right? For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. There's our Isaiah reference. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. 
When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Again, we see the importance. We see Christ bringing justice to the unjust. And I think a lot of times we can kind of put this negatively in people's lives where we say, well, this is what you're called. You're called to suffer. And we can't deny that that's a part of following God. But we also have to validate that, like, this is a relationship with God. And so we, whenever we are confronted with a circumstance of suffering, there's always a choice for us. Do we give ourselves to that suffering in the way Christ gave himself? Or do we avoid it? Do we respond differently? Do we react? Do we compensate some way? We always have a choice. And, and in either choice, I, I, don't, I, I don't think God's disapproving. But God's saying, listen, I know this is hard. I know that it's going to be painful either way. And so what I want for you is I want you to walk in the way of my son. Because when you walk in the way of my son, I can meet you there. I can come alongside you and I can be with you. And you will not be alone. But if you choose the other way, if you choose to compensate, if you try to manage and you try to do all this other stuff to to minimize or lessen the suffering, so I'll still be with you. Because that's who I am, right? God is with us. That's his promise. But you're going to experience all of the discomfort, all of the anguish that comes with the compensating. You're going to experience more suffering in the end because we're going to have to get through all that. And I'll go there with you, you know? God's like, I'm there. Like, hey, my son's been through it. Jesus is there. He's got you. Either way. But the invitation, the path that God shows us is, hey, walk the path of my son because in there I can redeem. When we walk that road, you will find redemption in me. And Peter captures that again so well when he says, right? He repeats that phrase. He says, by his wounds, we are healed. Paul also picks up on this in Colossians. In chapter 1, we have in verse uh, 19 there, he says, and this is talking just about the, the authority of Christ, like Christ is legit, like he's the guy. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. 
and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or in, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation, under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Paul's exhorting us. He's saying stay stable and steadfast in the faith. He calls us to this posture of staying faithful, Because when we are staying faithful, then when we go through this suffering, we have in our capacity the fullness of God to weather the storm, to get us through. Some of you might have had suffering in your life that There is no understanding why. If not in your own life, definitely we can see it in the world. It doesn't make sense. We're grieved by that, and appropriately so, right? Because by being grieved by it, We're honoring that people have value. And we're walking out this belief that all people are created by God, and so all people have worth. All people are image bearers. And so when suffering happens in someone's life, it's grievous because they're made in the image of God. Yet in Isaiah, he highlights that God was pleased the suffering of the servant. And again, we're faced with this tension that how could God be okay with suffering? And yet it says right there that it pleased him. And so we might not understand why. And it's very easy to, understand, to, to come to this conclusion that, well, then, then God is messed up <laughs> because of that. But much like a parent allows their child to experience difficulty in life so that there could be maturity, that there could be growth, God in the same way has understanding that we don't. And when somebody's in suffering, that's not really comforting, right? So we have to be careful how we say things. But what is comforting is And what we can hold in moments of unjust suffering is that Christ walked that road. Jesus walked that road. He knows what it means to be treated unjustly. He knows. And the thing that is pleasing is God, not the suffering. 
right? The thing that is pleasing is the Son walking in steadfast obedience to the Father, not the suffering. The thing that is pleasing is that God found in Him the willingness to redeem a people who God loves. That's what's pleasing. A couple years ago, we walked through this as a church body, reliving the passion um, as a part of our Lenten practice. And I just want to read, in closing, a section. Just invite you to just reflect on this as we close our time. Jesus, stripped of his clothes, is lying on his back, his head and hands arranged on the patabulum, the crossbeam by which they will lift him bodily to a thick post for execution. His eyes are shut. The wood beneath his head might seem a pillow, but soldiers stand with spikes beside him. They make a rough motion, a sign of assent, as if to say, now, but right now, or you miss the chance. Hurry. So then a woman rushes over and kneels by the figure of Jesus and offers him a drink. She's performing a merciful ritual, not unusual among the Jews. Gives strong drink to the dying. Commands the thirsty first chapter of Proverbs. And wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and remember their misery no more. The woman is seeking to ease the torment of the crucifixion. She's offering Jesus myrrh, or narcotic. And here is the gesture. Revelation, the mind of the dying Christ. He shakes his head. He will not drink from her cup. He will in no wise dull his senses or ease the pain. And so we know What are the feelings? What has the spirit of Jesus been doing since Gethsemane? Why suffering? With a pure and willful consciousness, terribly sensitive to every thorn and cut and scornful slur, suffering. This he has chosen. This he is attending to with every nerve of his being. Not for some perverted love of pain. He hates the pain but for a super, supernal love of us. That pain might be transfigured forever. Father God, we just sit with that image. Just laying there. Father, words will not comprehend, cannot describe the love you demonstrated for us in that moment. 
Father, our compassion goes out to your son. We would have been okay if you drank the myrrh. But there was going to be no blame in you. And you faithfully owned it all. And so, Father, we don't sit here condemned. We sit here wrestling with the feeling of being forgiven. We sit here in the tension of being called sons and daughters when our own hearts want to convict us of being sinful. And we walk with that tension every day. And so we come, we come to this story, we come to Lent, we come to the week, the Passion Week. Because the message that we're not good enough, the message that there's just something wrong with us or we have to be better, we're not worth your love, Lord, just overwhelms us. And we need to be confronted with your cleansing blood so that we can remember you took it all. Amen. Just stand for our closing song. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul, it is well. It is well with my soul, though Satan should buffet, though trial should come, let this blessed assurance control. That Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. It is well. It is well. 
my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. It is well, it is well, with my soul, with my soul, it is well, it is well. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well. It is well, it is well with my soul. Amen. Father God, as we go from here, may we just feel your presence in a new way to the depth of that tension that you walk with us through all things. Lord, you come to the place of tension. You come to the place where our desire to love you and serve you meets our desire to go off and do our own way. And you meet us there and you journey with us there and you claim us as your own. And so this morning, God, we walk from here claimed, known, understood, loved, desired by you. Amen. Go in peace.